Hey there, welcome to Disco in the Library, where I and some featured guests will be covering many different topics to assist and help you grow at Southern Ohio Medical Center. We hope that you learn something along the way. I am your host, Megan Gladel. Let's dive into this episode. Hi everyone, it's your host, Megan Gladel. This is a notice to all of our listeners that the information shared in this episode is specific to Southern Ohio Medical Center and may be different from other healthcare organizations. All healthcare organizations have policies and standards developed by their administration that are specific to their organization and in accordance with the governing bodies they report to. This information is not standard for all healthcare organizations. Thank you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Disco in the Library. As we continue through this month talking about Joint Commission, um, I have some new guests with me this week as well. Uh, We have Sarah Paschal and Todd Reffitt, and I will have them introduce themselves and their roles and what they will do um, through the Joint Commission process. So, Hi everybody, my name is Sarah Paschal. I am an infection preventionist here at SMC. I have been in this role for a little over a year and a half now, so I started this position right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. I have been with SMC for about 14 years, but like I said, only in the infection preventionist role for the last year. And my name is Todd Riffitt. I'm also an infection preventionist. I've been here at SMC for 17 years and have been in this current role for seven months. I worked in surgery for 14 years, which I feel that it gave me a great background to bring to this role. I feel like you've been in this role a lot longer than seven months, Todd. Yeah, it feels like it. (laughs) So what is an infection preventionist and what are some of your job duties? Um, It's an infection preventionist is, uh, or an IP as we're sometimes referred to, are professionals who make sure that uh, healthcare workers and patients are doing all the things that they should to prevent infections. Infection preventionists are like nurses like Sarah and I. They can be epidemiologists, microbiologists, doctors, or other health professionals who work to prevent microorganisms from spreading within healthcare facilities. Yeah, like Todd said, some of our job duties um, include looking for patterns of infection within the facility, observing practices, uh, educating our healthcare teams, advising hospital leaders, compiling infection data, developing and updating policies and procedures, uh, also coordinating with multiple health agencies like our local health departments, such as Portsmouth City and Scioto County, and also national agencies like the CDC. Todd and I also serve as co-chairs of the Joint Commission Infection Prevention Chapter, and we're responsible for ensuring that SMC is following all the standards required for infection prevention. Um, You may see us out on environmental tours checking for things that may fall within the standards. Some of the most common findings we see while out on tours are low-level disinfection, um, hand hygiene, IFU, and medication compounding compliance. Great. Thank you guys for explaining your titles a little bit more. I think like that title, a lot of people could probably break down, but I don't think everybody knows exactly what goes into that. So the first topic we're going to discuss is low level disinfection. So can you guys kind of explain what that means? Sure. Low level disinfection is the cleaning and disinfecting of non-critical reusable medical equipment to prevent the spread of pathogens or any organism that can cause disease 
to patients, visitors, and healthcare workers. What do you mean by non-critical reusable medical equipment? Non-critical items are those items that come in contact with intact skin. Uh, there's not like a break in the skin, uh, but not in contact with mucous membranes, such as the inside of your mouth or your nose or your eyelids. Intact skin actually acts as an effective barrier to most microorganisms. So the sterility of items that come in contact with in intact skin is not critical. Some examples of non-critical patient care items would be bedpans, blood pressure cuffs, stethoscopes, or wheelchairs. Okay, so you mentioned cleaning and disinfecting. Is there a difference between those terms? I think a lot of people think that they're the same thing. Can you kind of differentiate those? Yeah, uh, cleaning works by using some type of soap and water to physically remove the germs from the surfaces. This process does not necessarily kill the germs, but by removing them, it lowers their numbers and the risk of spreading infection. Now, disinfecting, on the other hand, actually kills germs on the surfaces of objects. Now, most of our cleaning or disinfecting solutions here at SMC have a dwell time. A dwell time, or sometimes it's referred to as a contact time, um, is the product's specific time that a surface must remain wet for the disinfectant to be effective. Now, these times vary from product to product. I have seen one minute dwell times, and we had a story my coworker told us that she had bought a store brand cleaning wipe that actually had a 10 minute dwell time. Now I know those wipes are not wet enough to keep that kitchen counter wet for 10 minutes. And none of us are going to keep pulling out wipes to keep a countertop wet for that long. So can you walk us through how we would, how we would perform low level disinfection? Yeah, the procedure can actually be found on the MCN policy manager and you search for low level disinfection. Okay, the first step is you're gonna look at what you've got, what you're gonna clean, and you're going to establish a dirty to clean workflow. Now, I mentioned stethoscope or something like that that you can hold in your hand. Item like that, you're, it's not necessarily the same as dirty to clean, but if you're looking at a bed, you're not gonna to wanna to clean down around the wheels and then work your way up to the mattress. So. The first thing is look at what you've got to clean and establish how you're gonna go about doing it. Okay, the next thing, you perform hand hygiene, and this will happen before cleaning and after cleaning. Uh, you're gonna ensure that you've got the correct personal protective equipment on, and you can find out what you need to wear by looking at the product's manufacturer IFU to determine the appropriate PPE. Then you're going to clean the equipment before disinfecting to allow for adequate disinfection. You're gonna remove all the visible soil uh, using your appropriate cleaning solutions as told by the IFU. You know, here's one thing that some people forget. You need to ensure that the equipment is free of tape or any leftover adhesive by using adhesive remover. You're gonna clean the equipment from the highest point to the lowest point, working downward from the cleanest to the dirtiest part of the equipment. Then you're going to disinfect the equipment using disinfectant that's approved by that equipment's manufacturer IFU. 
You're going to ensure that the disinfectant solution remains on the surface of the equipment for the amount of time indicated and is used as directed by the disinfectants manufacturer's IFU. You can hear that that's a repeating thing that uh, we're saying here. And this is something that Joint Commission will ask. How do you know how to clean this bed? Well, mm -hmm. I look at the manufacturer's IFU and it tells me everything I need to know. So after proper cleaning and disinfecting, you're gonna place the equipment in a clean storage area. If an item is unable to be cleaned or disinfected immediately after patient use, place the item in a designated area until it can be cleaned and disinfected. So I did hear you mention the term IFU quite a bit during that procedure that you were describing. Yeah. Can, if, and if our listeners don't already know what that is, can you explain what an IFU is? I'll take that one, Megan. Um, an IFU is actually the manufacturer's instructions for use. So IFU. Um, it's identifiable for each piece of equipment that SOMC has. It tells you about the equipment, how to use, and how to clean. Um, and like Todd said, this is a top joint commission finding that we follow the IFU not only correctly, but step-by-step step when cleaning. A lot of times our joint commission surveyors will actually get a copy of the IFU prior to even asking staff how they might clean it. And they're going to be looking step-by-step step to make sure that you follow it. So these items they can ask you about, it could be anything such as a blood pressure cuff, a glucometer, or an endos endoscope. Um, so where can you find these IFUs? You can actually find them in two places. Um, there can be a paper form in your area. Um, some managers like to keep a paper form in a binder. And if staff are unaware where those might be, just ask your manager. I'm sure they'll be able to point you in the right direction. But um, most of all of our IFUs can be found on the SMC intranet. So if you go to the internet on the homepage, wanna make sure first that you're using Google Chrome. This has gotten me a couple of times. If you're on the regular Internet Explorer browser, it will not let you um, log into the site. So make sure you're on Chrome. Uh, you're gonna click on the Employees tab on the internet in the upper, upper middle part of the site. Uh, scroll down to the external pages and click on OneSource. You'll notice that it has our username and password listed, which is lowercase SMC SMC. Once the one source page loads, click in the upper right hand corner and there's a little yellow tab that says search docs login. You'll click on that and then like I said, you'll put in the lowercase SMC as the username and the lowercase SMC as the password. Now that you're in, you can either click on facility favorites or you can just click search. Um, either way, we'll be able to get you whatever you're looking for. So for example, if you're looking for a glucometer, you should be able to just type that in and that document's immediately gonna come up. Um, and it'll populate there and over on the right hand side under actions, click view document and that document will populate. And it's just a little bit of light reading. Usually they're anywhere from 10 to 20 some pages, but basically you're just looking um, for joint commission purposes, the cleaning and how to accurately use that equipment. So like I said, everything that you will need about that equipment is right there for you. If you're unable to find the equipment you're looking for though, please let your manager know as either the IFU may just need to be uploaded or it actually could be listed under another name. Um, and it's important to know where these are located and that we are following them step-by-step step because like I said, Joint Commission, this is something they really like to pick on. Um, and it's very important to mention also that if you don't know the answer to something um, that we say, you know, I, I don't really know the answer to that, but I can get you somebody that does and go to your manager or your supervisor. Um, just try not to say, I don't know, and give up. Say, I'm not sure, but I'll find out that answer for you.
Thank you for <laughs> explaining that, Sarah. Um, so you mentioned that these should be easily, you know, accessible to employees. Um, are these pretty well like updated regularly or do, or do these really change year to year or do they pretty much stay the same? Most of the time they stay the same. If we do get any updated ones, um, the managers usually are really good about updating those. Usually it's when we get a new piece of equipment. So say we go from one glucometer to a newer model. The IFU completely has to be taken down and the new one replace it. Okay. So. That makes sense. So our next topic that we're going to talk about is hand hygiene, which I'm sure coming out of COVID, everybody should be very well versed. But just in case they didn't learn that, uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that practice? Yeah. Um, hand hygiene is one thing that I really think before I, before I took my job in surgery, I didn't think about it as much and how important it was until I got here, you know, in surgery and then brought it on into this role as infection preventionist. But I found an article when I was looking some things up for this that the World Health Organization put out that said that 70% of healthcare workers do not follow recommended health hand hygiene practices. That's a pretty high number. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so what is the recommended hand hygiene practice? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the World Health Organization has five key moments for hand hygiene. And these are the same thing that we, we follow when we uh, do new employee orientation, new nurse orientation. You're to do hand hygiene before touching the patient, before clean or aseptic procedures, after body fluid exposure risk, after touching a patient, after touching a patient's surroundings. Now, keeping this in mind, uh, ABC News did a study and they monitored 250 people leaving a public restroom and of those 250 people, 64 people left without cleaning their hands in any way at all. Now, of those people, two-thirds of the women washed their hands, but only one-third of those used soap. Now, men, I'm sorry to say, guys, that's listening, we were even less compliant. After speaking with some of them that walked out, they said that they never washed their hands throughout the day other than when they took a shower, either that morning or that night. Now, those 25% that didn't wash their hands were not healthcare workers, but they represent the population of visitors and family that are here in our environment, touching many of the surfaces that we touch daily. That's why we as healthcare workers who are trusted with the care of patients who are already in a compromised state of health have to be diligent with our hand hygiene. That was very eye-opening information. I, I would give the women maybe some benefit of the doubt, hoping like maybe they had some um, hand sanitizer in their purse or something, and maybe they just preferred that. But I don't see very many men that carry, you know, that with them. So that I, I kind of believe that number a little bit more, <laughs> that less men are, are cleaning their hands throughout the day. Yep. So let's talk now about the people who are washing their hands. Of the people who wash their hands, many different studies, I, I saw three for sure, say only 5% of people who wash their hands are actually doing it correctly. 
eight to 10 seconds is the average time that people usually wash their hands. Now, the thing that we must realize about hand washing is this. Hand washing is supposed to be a mechanical action, which means that the way you move your hands to scrub, to lather, um, and otherwise agitate the surface of your skin, that spreads the soap around and it makes sure that you're getting into all the cracks and crevices of your hands. It's a friction type motion. So the CDC gives a very conservative number of 45% of hospital acquired infections that could be reduced with the improvement of hand hygiene. So you mentioned that on average, a lot of people, only 5% are washing their hands correctly and they're only, you know, washing them eight to 10 seconds. So how, what is the proper way we should be washing our hands? Well, because here at the hospital, we are very big on evidence-based practice. The CDC has five steps to wash your hands the right way. The first step is you wet your hands with clean running water. The temperature doesn't matter, studies have said. You apply soap. You lather your hands by rubbing them together with that soap. You lather the back of your hands in between your fingers, underneath your fingernails, and you do every single finger. You clean every single finger. You scrub your hands for at least 20 seconds. And if you need a timer, many, many people have said you can hum the happy birthday song from the beginning to the end two times. That'll get you there 20 seconds. I also found out that Spotify has a playlist that plays music for 20 seconds that when you wash your hands. But then you rinse your hands well under clean running water, and then you dry your hands with a clean towel or air dry them. Now, I did read that we always hear that, you know, be green, save the trees, but a lot of studies are saying now that if you dry your hands with paper towel or even cloth towel at home, that actual friction is also helping to rid your skin of any bio burden that's left on there. Now, when soap and water are not readily available or your hands are not visibly soiled, you can use hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. And the way you do this, you apply the gel to the palm of one hand and you can read the label to find out the correct amount, but many of the machines are automated now to dispense a measured amount. You then rub your hands together. You rub the gel all over the surfaces of your hands and fingers and even taking your fingertips and rubbing them in the palm to help get that gel up under your fingernails. And you rub them until your hands are dry. Now, just like using soap and water, this whole process with the gel will probably take around 20 seconds also for, for you to rub until it's dry. But one thing we have to remember is that if you have been in a room of a C. diff patient, you must use soap and water because alcohol gel does not kill C. diff spores. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and one thing that I learned not too long ago was with the hand sanitizer, a lot of people depending on, I guess, the amount <clears throat> and the size of your hands that gets dispensed. A lot of people are like, this is too much, and they want to like wave their hands back and forth to get it to dry, and you're not supposed to do that. But you mentioned you're supposed to rub your hands together until yep. they're dry. Until so it's so. dry, yeah. And Todd makes some really good points on hand hygiene. So talking about that, another thing we tend to see out on environmental tours is that this most crucial step is always being missed sometimes um, prior to preparing or compounding medications. 
We don't see people wash their hands or sanitize. And just because you're getting ready to put on gloves, that is not a substitute for hand hygiene. So what is medical compounding? Why should somebody be washing their hands to do so that? So medication compounding is the preparation, mixing, assembling, packaging, and labeling of one or more drugs. Compounding includes the combining, admixing, mixing, diluting, reconstituting, or otherwise altering of a drug or bulk substance. So a good rule of thumb is, if you're mixing more than one drug together, you are medication compounding, and you should absolutely be following our medication compounding policy and performing hand hygiene before any preparation of any medication, whether or not you're compounding. Can you provide some examples of, of what somebody might be doing to do? like? Um, most often we see the provider's offices are mixing Kenalog and lidocaine together, so those okay. are typically joint injections. And then sometimes we'll see in the urgent cares where they mix recessin and lidocaine for an antibiotic injection. So is it only providers and nurses that are doing this? No. So actually, um, in the outpatient setting, a provider can make a designee. So it can either be the prescriber, which is most of the time the provider, or they can designate a designee. The only thing that SOMC requires of designees is that they complete a competency checkoff prior to compounding these medications. So what should staff be doing if they are com compounding medications in their area? So first and foremost, they need to make sure that they have a designated clean area, such as a countertop that is not adjacent to other areas where potentially contaminated or hazardous items are placed. Uh, this area should be limited to compounding personnel and it should not be in a location that has unsealed windows or doors that connect to the outdoors or an area of high traffic flow. Uh, shouldn't be adjacent to construction sites, warehouses, or food preparation. Um, make sure that your surface that you're gonna be preparing your medications on is cleaned immediately prior to the compounding with a hospital approved disinfectant and that that disinfectant is stored in close vicinity for you to use. We actually had a joint commission mock survey not too long ago, and that was one of her top findings. She would ask staff, which was their, you know, where was their clean area that they were going to be compounding these medications? And they would say, well, right here. And she'd be like, well, where's your cleaning wipes? And they'd have to go, you know, two rooms over to go get mm. the cleaning wipes. And she was like, well, that's kind of a red flag to a surveyor if you don't have those wipes uh, readily available. And also make sure that if you are medication compounding, you use SOMC's medication log. The blank log can actually be found within the medication compounding policy. And this is located on the internet and the MCN and it's actually on the last page. And it's also important to mention that if you are preparing any medication, whether you're compounding or not, that you should get a new sterile needle for patient injection. So in other words, if you use the same needle to compound the medication or to pull up the medication, you should not be using that same needle to give the patient the injection. So in an outpatient setting where these are medications are being compounded, how long are they good for? So those really depend on the medications that are being compounded. So for example, some lidocaine vials actually have an antimicrobial microbial preservative in them, in which case those are good for 12 hours after preparation. If the medication being compounded does not have this antimicrobial preservative, such as the lidocaine that has it in it, those are only good for six hours. So if this time has passed, the medication must be disposed of within that six hour time frame. 
and it has to be disposed of in an all charcoal container. Do you have to label these medications, I guess, as far as like what they are and, and maybe when you prepared them to keep you on track of how long they're good? So that depends as well. Uh, Joint Commission tells us if you are using this medication immediately, so you have compounded the medication or you've prepared the medication and you're going straight into the patient's room to deliver, you do not need to label it. But if you're compounding the medication and you're going to give later or there's a potential for you to get distracted or you need to do something else before going into the patient's room, the medication absolutely should be labeled. Um, same with any medication compounded or that you're not going to give within the organization. So that label should have a patient name, drug strength, quality of each ingredient, the expiration, which is also called beyond use date and time, the date and time that you prepared it, and the initials or name of the person preparing the compounded drug. Well, that was a lot of great information. I learned a lot and I hope everybody else listening did too. And hopefully, um, if they're listening and maybe their area struggles with some of these things, hopefully they're able to pass this information on to them. Um, but if anybody does have any questions specifically for Todd or Sarah, their email addresses will be included in our show notes so you can reach out to them directly. And I'm sure they would be happy to come help your team um, make any adjustments or provide any advice that they have. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having us on your show, Megan. We hope that your listeners have learned something about infection prevention. And like Megan said, if anyone has any questions or anything about what Todd and I talked about, please feel free to give us a call at 8180 or 5798. Or like Megan said, she'll put our email in the comments. And if you see us out rounding around on the floors, don't be afraid to approach us. We want to help spread this information out. We want you guys to learn. We want these patients to be safe. So. And it's always better to ask the questions now before a joint commission comes. So. Definitely so, yes. Yep. Okay. Absolutely right. Well, thank you both again. So 